0: We are now live on the Conversations That Matter podcast. I am your host, John Harris. Uh, this is an unannounced podcast, so uh, I assume many of you are going to probably listen to this on the replay tomorrow, uh, and it's also a weekend, so hopefully uh, everyone is having a good time and they have their weekend plans already. Um, I my, my plans this weekend are to have soup and to uh, lay low. Uh, some of, you know, I've been sick and, uh, I still am. Uh, although my mind is getting a little better cause I don't have a fever right now and, uh, I'm still a little slow, but getting better. Um, but yeah, my stomach and the congestion, uh, not, not getting so much better. So I'm just uh, hoping that, um, Maybe a little rest this weekend uh, will enable me next week to kind of hit things full steam because I'm going to see some of you in New Mexico. And I don't have the slide up. I should have had this up. But uh, if you go to JohnHarrisPodcast.com and go to the top, uh, you can find my speaking engagements and information on uh, how to uh, get more info on the New Mexico? Uh, I think it's Albuquerque that I'm going to be in. So uh, if you live near that that area and you want to get get more information, go to johnharrispodcast.com. Um, anyway, thank you for your prayers, and uh, I decide I, I have decided a number of days this week, including today, to try to do a podcast anyway, and I think it's worked out so far. Okay, <laughs> I don't think I'm saying anything too crazy. Um, let me know if I do in the chat box, and uh, I, I will. Uh, I will take that into consideration. Now, maybe I'm just crazy anyway, though. So I mean, that that may have nothing to do with my sickness. Um, Before we get started today, it's going to be a news roundup. uh, And and so that's a little easier for me, because it's just things that people have sent me from this week and uh, really related to conservative evangelicalism, but things that they've wanted me to comment on and talk about. So uh, I'm going to play some video clips. We're going to talk about them. But before we do, um, one of the sponsors for this podcast is Equipping the Persecuted. And this is a one minute uh, little video that uh, I want to share with you all about that particular ministry. know that more Christians are persecuted for their faith in Nigeria than in every other country of the world combined. of all Christians killed for their faith are Nigerians because Islamic jihadists are destroying Christian villages, homes, and churches. But there is someone doing something. A team of American and Nigerian Christians called Equipping the Persecuted head toward the chaos while smoke is still rising. They pull lives out of the wreckage and help them rebuild. They provide emergency medical care, support for widows and orphans, security training, and meet other needs so Christians can rebuild their lives. This year, they are building a hospital and a women's rehab clinic to help victims. Two new schools to educate over 800 displaced children. And they continue to equip villages with the security training and infrastructure they need to protect themselves in the future. Consider being part of the effort to support brothers and sisters on the other side of the world. Go to equippingthepersecuted.org. All right. So uh, you can see Judd Saul from Enemies Within the Church. He's also is the founder and president of Equipping the Persecuted in some of those pictures. And uh, you can go to, uh, like I said at the end there, equippingthepersecuted.org and find out more info uh, about uh, that organization. And uh, of course, uh, more than happy to sponsor helping our brothers and sisters overseas like that. Well, um, I'm going to just jump right into it. So I think the first thing that I'd like to do today if possible, is talk about this Mike Kelsey thing. Um, actually, you know what? I, let, let's, let's do that second because uh, I just realized um, the crew thing is not a video. So I have all my videos queued up, but the, the crew uh, situation is not a video. It's actually an article. Some of you might have missed this article. Uh, it was in World Magazine. So um, just came out, I think, today, if I'm not mistaken. So here it is from World Magazine. And uh, the title of it is Taking Sides, A Growing Divide Over the Theology of Sexual Brokenness Threatens to Tear Evangelical Institutions Apart. And for those listening, there's a picture of a church split in half, and you have one half uh, going towards a rainbow flag and the other half staying, I guess, normal. So if you read this article, um, it sets the stage. It talks about uh, Rosaria Butterfield and what she said before 10,000 people at Liberty University's convocation. And she called out Crew for supporting uh, Revoice Theology. And we covered this when it happened. In fact, we covered it a few times. And um, it covers someone who heard this news, who worked for Crew. Uh, and so I, I don't really want to get into all the details about that. I think that's what kind of personifies, I guess, the issue. What I'm really more interested is um, in is what Crew had to say about this. So. Um, it says that days after Butterfield's address crew sent an email to its staff linking to its media policy. So, so here's what was happening. And I, and I knew about this from people working for crew, but this is public information. Now they sent an email to people in their organization, reminding them about their media policy, right? Spokesperson resources and communication best practices. It reiterated the message all staffers should share if questioned about the training. The organization holds a traditional, historical, biblical understanding of sexuality and gender. And it, and, and this is no different than what they were saying really before this, but I think they just wanted to remind everyone, you're going to get a lot of questions, and this is how you handle it. Um, but Cruz leaders, the story says, didn't address Butterfield's accusations directly, and um, The author says, I emailed Keith Johnson, Cruz Director of Theological Development, to ask about the training and Butterfield's comments. He never responded. Patrick Martin, Cruz Director of Communications, told me in an email that the organization would not participate in interviews on the topic. Quote, there are a number of issues surrounding sexuality and gender that we feel are best addressed in the context of relationships. So that's really it. There's there's actually uh, not... A lot of ground shaking things in this article. I think that's the most important thing. Um, and it, it then gets into describing kind of the, the broader issue that uh, plagues and challenges Christian organizations on this topic. It does uh, talk about, and we've already talked about this, but their new sexuality and gender document states, we embrace the goodness of the sexual difference God created by living distinctly as male and female which including using pronouns that align with our biological sex. So they, they did change some things around. They're not commenting though on uh, using Preston Sprinkles material or well, even their, their stance. They're not, they're just pointing people to, here's our documents. So um, I would say mixed bag, like the, the thing that is good and, and maybe this doesn't provide a lot of information for those who have listened to this podcast. You, you've already known about this with crew, um, but at least it, it verifies that even media organizations don't seem to be able to get firm answers from them. Uh, they can just observe what's happening externally, the documents that they're producing, but they can't actually have a conversation with someone on the record about it. And, and so, um, so the, the, the good part, I guess, is that they are changing some of their documents to align more with what the Bible teaches about sexuality. Uh, the thing that does concern me, and it always has, about Crew, Crew is to me one of the most frustrating organizations in evangelicalism that I've ever done any work on. Just because uh, they, there's a very strong sense of hierarchy within the organization. The people, and it's outside the local church, right? This is a parachurch. But the people who work for the organization, even if they work part time, they, they very strongly believe it is disrespectful to ever counter signal or challenge, even. Uh, the their supervisors, especially talking to people outside the organization, and it doesn't matter if they've sometimes for years been banging their heads <laughs> against the board trying to get somewhere. It they still just feel that that's a dishonorable thing, that that's uh, not above board. And so when they when they finally did challenge the the critical race theory stuff in their uh, concerned document, um, it did not go well internally. I mean, the effect of it was that the, uh, the lenses Institute was essentially shut down at least, uh, I mean, at least as far as crews concerned, it doesn't exist in the United States. They're not using that training as far as I know in the United States. And so there, there might've been a little movement, but there was never any apologies. There's never any acknowledgement, right? There's never any refutation of the things that they previously taught. Uh, they still have stuff on their website that is CRT infused. and and so the, the main thing that came of that was the people who raised the concern were then punished. And, and then you have this, this issue, this uh, LGBT issue, especially soft peddling, transgenderism and, and same sex attraction and these kinds of things. And the way they handle it is just to kind of edit some of their documents that were getting scrutinized. And again, you know, they're not, there's no public repentance. There's no uh, acknowledgement there's no refutation it's just it, it's like they never they never had that position and so it, it, i guess you know it's a good thing to to note that big organizations like that they will they will bend to pressure especially from donors if there's enough pressure so so that's good but you know it would be preferable if they bent to conviction and they bent to what the word of god said because they're a christian organization right that's where i'm not seeing a lot of evidence the, the way that they're handling this so Little crew update there. Um, now, let's get into the Mike Kelsey stuff since uh, that was something that I was asked about. I think this is from last Sunday. Two people uh, sent this to me who wanted me to, to comment on it. And this is a, a clip from a sermon on Nehemiah chapter one, Mike Kelsey. Uh, and Mike Kelsey, for those who don't know, uh, this is at McLean Bible Church. He is now a senior pastor there. He w- He's just been, um, I think a senior pastor or teaching pastor, sorry, teaching pastor there along with David Platt, and he was the one in 2020 that talked about torching white evangelicals. <laughs> he wanted to do that because he was so upset, so that didn't cancel him or any, you know, didn't, didn't seem to slow him down in his career. He's now um, has, has a higher uh, office at the church, and here's what he said. I believe this is last Sunday at uh, from the pulpit.
1: Here, be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Now, remember, this is why I gave you all that history. Remember, the people of God were taken into Babylonian captivity as a consequence of their own sin. But here's the thing. Nehemiah wasn't even alive when all that happened. And yet he's confessing sin that he's never even participated in.
0: Okay, let's stop right there for a moment. Let's just read uh, ourselves the beginning of that passage in Nehemiah chapter one. So it opens, uh, says the the words of Nehemiah, the son of uh, Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Shislav. In the twentieth year, which I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. So, so he's in the Persian Empire, asking about uh, his people, right? And they said to him, to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven, and I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. And then the passage that you just heard Mike Kelsey read, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. Now stop there. Just to set the context so people know what we're talking about. um, Nehemiah, I should should probably say, for for me personally, right, looking at what's happening to my own country, I've kind of put to shame a little. (laughs) have i ever done this i don't think so you know wept for days but that's that's what Nehemiah is doing he's weeping for days he's praying he's in agony over the situation of his people and um and that, there's a beautiful thing in that but there's it's also sad and tragic right and he wants to do something and you read the rest of the book and you find out he does now in in this particular this this initial uh setting up the stage for him becoming the governor and all, and all the rest of the things he does He acknowledges the sin that got Israel to that point that he also participated in. Um, And it says, so so there's, I think there's two things to note here. It says um, that he was uh, praying, hear the prayer of your servant, right? On behalf of the sons of Israel in verse six, he's praying on someone's behalf. He's praying on his own behalf as well, but he's also praying on someone else's behalf. Uh, because he is, it's like his family, right? And and then it says that, um, that the sins of Israel, which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. So there's a participation in this. Uh, and you find this in other passages too, that social justice warriors want to use to try to um, approve of and endorse corporate apologies today for things that happened in the past in the United States that they're upset about. But what often they they miss is that these prayers are directed to God, right? Not to minorities who are oppressed or anything like that. It's, we're not going to uh, people who are, you know, think of themselves as homosexual and then trying to repent to them because no, it's it, the repentance, whatever evil was done, it, the repentance is to God, first of all. So that the direction is important there. Uh, but then there's always a, an element of participation that it, the people who are repenting of these things they they may be repenting of things that have been sin patterns that have taken the course of generations to uh, to to build, but they're also part of that. So it's it's not something that they're excused from. it's something that they're within that they've also taken part in. So there is a sense of personal responsibility here as well. So um, so it's it's not quite the same. It's not a parallel thing to, we need to go apologize and, and do reparations and uh, do this corporate repentance thing for things that well, we didn't do. And of course, you know uh, the Bible is also clear that the, the sins of the fathers and the sins of the sons they, they bear those themselves, right? That's not talking about generational patterns though of of habits of sin that are then taught and then reproduced and copied, right? The, so 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 there's the difference there. In verse seven, it says we have acted very corruptly against you okay against who against god right how did we do that we have not kept your commandments nor the statutes nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant moses um so and then it goes on so this is the the stage this is the uh this is what we're talking about and mike kelsey i'll show you what he does with this uh he's already trying to weave a an argument that this applies to America 2024. We need to uh, have a repentance for sins that might not even be ours. That sins that we didn't commit, that we haven't participated in from the past.
1: And listen, this is especially difficult to understand for those of us in more individualistic cultures. But this kind of corporate confession is so important for a couple of different reasons. First, in corporate confession, we acknowledge the sin of the past. Nehemiah starts by acknowledging the sinful history that has shaped his current context.
0: He's not- Let's stop there, that's not true. He's acknowledging his participation in a pattern of sin over the course of generations that God judged Israel for and was continuing to judge them for. So that's different
1: (laughs) taking responsibility for their choices, but he's taking ownership of the consequences.
0: He is taking responsibility for their choices together. The choices of Israel, well, he's taking responsibility for his participation in a, a myriad of choices that were made because this is a covenantal relationship Israel has with God. So they were all as a corporate body to honor the law of God and they did not which is also a different relationship than the United States has, uh, which is funny to me because the social justice warriors want to go after supposed uh, Christian nationalists, right? And say that, well, they believe that there's a covenant uh, that the United States has with God and that's off. But then they, tr- when they do things like this, they, they draw parallels and they try to make out like the United States or European countries are somehow in that same relationship and they're not. So, uh, so, so Nehemiah is in in the context here, he is acknowledging there was a covenant that was broken, and he was one of the people, a part part of a myriad of people, but he was one who um, participated in the breaking of that covenant
1: in other words, he's saying, God, it wasn't my fault, but now it's my
0: responsibility. Where does he ever say that he says he says he does acknowledge that it's his fault, it's his sins and the sins of his father so that Mike Kelsey is just making stuff up at this point it's it's really pathetic that this even passes for preaching to be quite honest with you
1: and this theology of corporate confession is so important for us in our own context particularly as we think about the history of sin in our country the patterns of sin in our particular ethnic community and the generational cycles of sin in our own families we don't exist in a vacuum. There's history that has shaped the context that we're in.
0: There's, there's, obviously that's true. Of course, history shapes the context we're in and the choices that were made by previous generations are going to, to affect us, they come down to us. I mean, there, and there's a myriad of things. It's so complicated. We don't even understand you know, 1% probably of the different things, choices that, that were made that affect us. So, I mean, he he's right in that, but, but, you know, trying to use that to then say that we need to somehow accept the consequences for everyone else's sin who stands in our lineage, um, that's, that's the dog that doesn't hunt. <laughs> When we confess
1: those sins, listen, when we confess those sins, when we're, when we're honest about those things that maybe we weren't even directly a part of, we didn't participate in, but we know these are sins that affect our context, or, or maybe in our own ethnic community, they are they are patterns of sin that we're often, because of our blind spots, prone to repeat, or generational cycles of sin in our families that honestly give so much explanation for the inclinations and temptations that we constantly Battle against in our own lives. Listen, when we confess those sins, we're not taking the blame, we're taking a stand. What, what does
0: that even mean? <laughs> we're, we're not taking the blame when we confess those sins, or taking a stand. So that's not even a repentance anymore. It's it's I mean, he's admitting here that it's not even so, so make sure that everyone is is tracking with me. What you just heard Mike Kelsey say is that. You're not not taking blame for this stuff. You're taking a stand. If you're taking a stand, then you're just making a statement. That's all you're saying. You're saying, I'm standing against this sin. This is sin that happened. And in my confession, I'm going to use this repentance moment, this corporate repentance, to take a stand against it, to signal that I'm, it's a virtue signal. I'm against it. But you're not actually acknowledging that you are to blame for it. So it's not even repentance anymore. So, I mean, he just let the cat out of the bag.
1: And there's a difference. We're taking a stand to say, God, we acknowledge that we have a role to play in correcting the sins of the generations before us. The sins that have set the table we're currently sitting at, the sins that caused the consequences we've now inherited. We're not trying to sanitize that sin. We're not trying to rationalize that sin. We're acknowledging the reality of their sin and we're taking a stand to say that we don't want to repeat or contribute to that sin in our generation. That's what the depth of this kind of corporate confession looks like. And so listen, in corporate confession, we acknowledge the sins of the past, but we also admit our own sin. We admit our own sin. And that's what Nehemiah does. He says, even I and my father's house have sinned.
0: All right. So, so, so it's a mess. That's, that's all I can say about Mike Kelsey's preaching here. It's just a mess. You know, you're... you're You're not accepting the guilt. You're taking a stand, but then you are confessing your sin, but your sin is now separated from the greater sin of the people. And you have to acknowledge their sin so that you can move forward and not repeat their sin. But so somehow your sin is distinct from that. Uh, If you just read the passage, it's much easier. They're in a covenant relationship with God. That's understood from the beginning. If you just understood the, the relationship Israel, I mean, he even talks about it, but the relationship that God has with Israel. And Nehemiah, uh, him and his fathers and the people of Israel have all taken part in violating the commandments of God. It's as simple as that. He's responsible. He's, uh, but he's part of this corporate covenant. So, uh, Mike Kelsey's trying to go in all kinds of different directions on this, that the text just doesn't really merit. So if anyone has any other questions on that or statements or whatever, then uh, feel free to put them in the chat box and uh, I can try to get to them a little later in the podcast. But, um, I I guess the thing that stuns me more than anything else is how unimpressive Kelsey's preaching is. And I, I don't just say that to say it, it's, it it truly is um, almost insulting the intelligence. It is insulting. It's insulting the intelligence of the people that are there. I I don't understand how this kind of thing is allowed to happen. It's certainly not, uh, it's not even surface level um, attempts to understand what the text is actually saying. It, it, he's got an application in mind before it, it seems like before he's even approached it. And he wants to kind of use the text to cram into his application. Uh, cause he has, a, it's a corporate apology and then it's not really an apology. It's an acknowledgement of other people's sin and taking a stand. It's a statement that you're making, but then it turns into a, a different apology for your own sin. What is he talking about? All right. Uh, Let's uh, let's move on to the next thing. What, what is the next thing? We, I think um, we'll, we'll end with the Alibeth Beth stuff. Let's just uh, I don't know if I'll show the whole thing. I could probably summarize this in a few sentences, but some of you probably are going to want to see um, see some of this. So I guess I, I don't know if this is from last Sunday or what, but John MacArthur was asked a question about this Alistair Big, uh attending a wedding with a transgender person situation and uh here's what he had to say good
2: evening pastor john this my name's neil mcleod yes. i'm a Scot. yes they're not
0: let me let me skip ahead with the so so he he this is the question essentially i'm going to skip past the question because the question is like you know how could alistair big say what he said about uh attending a, a a wedding with a transgender person solemnizing that occasion that kind of thing so here's what macarthur john macarthur uh, so.
2: Yeah, that, that question Thank came you. up and has gotten all over the Internet. Let me say, first of all, that Alistair and I have been friends for, well, 45 years. Uh, when I was in Scotland 45 years ago, I was pushing his 45-year-old son in a pram. You know what a pram is, Neil. It's like a baby buggy. So we've had a lot of history together, and I have a great affection for him. Um, I also want to say that you shouldn't judge a man by his weakest moment. Um, all of us will have a, a moment of weakness. Having said that, um, I have to disagree with the answer that he gave to the question. A believer should not go to a homosexual, transgender wedding.
0: Can, can I just say one thing? Um because I agree with uh, what he's saying about you shouldn't judge people on their weakest moment. All of us are going to, we're going to all look pretty bad. <laughs> um, you think of David, right? You judge him on his weakest moment. He's murdering someone. Um, the thing about Alistair Big that's different to me though, is it wasn't a moment. It was a, 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 he was confronted many times and he doubled down many times. And so while I agree with what, you know, John MacArthur saying there, Pastor John MacArthur, I, I uh, you know, Pastor Alistair Begg has given us more than just a moment on this issue. And it's it's come to define his ministry because of how resolute he is on this and unwilling to um, repent. Now, the hope is still, obviously, that he would repent and he would say, oh my goodness, what did I do? And, you know, of course this is wrong, but he hasn't done that. It's just been double down after double down. So, while that might be true, I don't think that applies to the Alistair Begg situation necessarily. It wasn't a moment, not at this point. So uh, anyway.
2: For, for a lot of reasons. But he was making the argument that you go out of compassion rather than condemnation. You, you go to show love to them as a means to reach them. My, my response to that is the most loving thing you could possibly do would be not to go and to condemn the relationship. That is loving. It's not loving to help somebody celebrate stepping into the fury of God's judgment. No, no transgender person, effeminate homosexual will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is not a time for you to celebrate thinking that your affection for somebody is the means of their salvation. They, they will come to salvation when the Lord exposes their sin. That's why the Holy Spirit, John 16, convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. And what should be said to somebody is this is wrong. This is against God's order. This is not marriage. It is not a marriage because you can't have a marriage between two people of the same sex. It's not a marriage at all. It is defying God who ordained marriage, ordained male and female, and designed procreation. It is a blasphemy against God, as is transgender life and homosexuality as well. That is the message to give in love. I, um, I, I couldn't, beyond the theological reasons and the biblical reasons, I couldn't affirm that. If, if I went, I would affirm that. Not only could I not affirm it, I, I don't think I could tolerate it. I don't think I could survive sitting in something like that and feeling like I was supportive of it. And then to give them a gift, I, that, that is to aid and abet the celebration of something that is defying God's design. And the very, very, I would say point of the spear currently of the corruption of this entire culture. So you can't be a part of that.
0: Okay, for those who are just tuning in, um, there's actually a few more minutes to this, but it's nothing that different than what he just said. So it's more him reiterating and you can see there's a, I think a grief there of some kind, cause he's been friends with Alistair Begg for that many years, but his answer, as far as how he would answer the question, um, is pretty solid. He's t- saying that, uh, that, that people like that don't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Of course you can't. So, um, so, so that was the answer he gave. Now, um, uh, there was a few people who, uh, sent me and including, um, there was uh, uh, David Moral had had told me he knew about this. I don't. I think he was going to write something, and I don't know if he did or not at, at Protestia. But, um, but there was a video of MacArthur from a few years ago. I don't know how many at a Ligonier conference, and it, it, someone pulled it back up. And I don't. I think it was a uh, a blogger or a podcaster named. Uh, well, the the channels. I think biblically, but they they found this, pulled it back up, and I'm going to show it to you. And I. I, I'm only showing it to you because this already got brought up, and I, I do want to address it because people asked me to comment on it, a uh, number of people, actually. So here's the um, the video. Sam so MacArthur at a Ligonier conference, and he's asked a, a, a question that's kind of similar. Uh, can a baker bake a cake for a gay wedding? Here it is.
3: Truly sinful for a Christian business person, for instance, a cake baker, to produce a product for a gay wedding.
0: on a roll
3: no it's not
0: now, i don't know what's funny about that there's had to have been some context <laughs> i don't know what was coming before that but i, I can't imagine them laughing at the, that question so
3: sinful for a cake maker to make a cake for a gay wedding <clears throat> any more than it's sinful for a guy who runs a restaurant to serve dinner to somebody who's gay and sits in a booth and eats the food or goes to the market and buys a loaf of bread and you own the market
0: um So uh, before we play the rest of the clip, just point out something real quick. There's a parallel MacArthur draws here, right? He says it's in the same category. So baking a cake for a gay wedding is in the same category as you own a supermarket and uh, someone who considers themselves homosexual walks in and buys a loaf of bread. Uh, So, you know, you could own a hotel and, you know, people come in that you don't agree with their lifestyle, let's say. Uh, but they're frequenting your business. So you're not endorsing their lifestyle. You're not endorsing their sin. uh, You're not participating in their sin. They're just using your service. That's what he's trying to say here. Now, it's an odd parallel in my mind because if we stop the video there, uh, and there's no more context, especially, it seems like he's saying like, you could have a baker who specifically designs, sets up, you know, celebrates a gay wedding by, you know, p- making a specifically gay wedding cake. That's what I thought, you know, at the beginning of the question, that's what you think he's saying that, it, of course, it's not a sin to make to a cake for a gay wedding. But if his parallel holds up, it sounds like what he's thinking about is like a gay couple uh, walks in the store, the, the cake store or whatever, and they they just want to buy a generic cake and you're selling it to them. That's what it it seems like he's referring to if his parallel holds up. Um, but it's poorly I, you know, I think he would hopefully admit that that's poorly phrased, but let me play for you the rest of it.
3: What, what the issue is, is, is not whether that's sinful. It's whether the federal government can demand that people do certain things, which goes against their Christian conscience. Um, the issue is to me is more of a, political, governmental issue, Um, I I actually think that we need to show love to everyone. Um, And particularly we need to do good to all those that are outside the kingdom as well as inside the kingdom as much as possible. So a a, a gesture of kindness toward uh, some unregenerate person is in itself not a sin. But again, if it violates your conscience in some way, then you don't want to train your conscience. Uh, you don't want to train yourself to ignore your conscience. So I think it's a personal issue. Um, the, the The issue becomes when people are basically fined or imprisoned for doing things that are religious conscience matters, and that speaks to the issue of um, how much authority the government has to make you do that.
0: So it's, it's, it's extra confusing. This must have been like 2015 or so. That's what I'm thinking. Like this seems like it's about around the time that we had people actually being uh, fined for, for these kinds of things uh, in, in places like Colorado um, and Arizona. And, and so he ends the whole thing with like, well, you know, we don't want the government coming and forcing Christians to violate their consciences. But those, the issues where they were violating their consciences is where they were celebrating, they're you know, actually participating in these things. So it's it's a confusing take because it starts off with, you you think that he's going down the road of they're baking cakes specifically for homosexual weddings, but then it kind of sounds like he's actually saying, no, it's just you know couples coming in, they're buying a cake, and so you, you've inadvertently baked a cake, but it's not specifically for participating in the sin. But then he ends with an example that makes you think again, This has, this sounds like it's the issue of um, celebrating a gay wedding by baking a specific cake. So that's confusing. Um, It's not good. It's not a great answer, uh, but I don't know when that was. I think it was probably a few years ago. So here's, um, since then, I got to show you the uh, person who I think brought this up. Now, it could be wrong. Someone in the channel is saying that, uh, actually, a few people are saying that the uh, book, is it the book, chapter, verse? Seiko Woods, I think that he brought this up first. BC, BCV podcast. I don't know. Um, so, so that could be true. But whoever brought it up first, um, this is the uh the I think biblically. And so he did that video. That's where I got that video. That's the only place I've seen that video. But he he did a follow-up uh, on this, and there was a statement put out, uh, and I think it was just to him, but he's putting it out publicly from Phil Johnson on this. And um, it says within the scope of how he interpreted the question, meaning MacArthur, it's the right answer. It's not inherently simple for a Christian owned retail establishment to serve a homosexual. John is applying the principle of first Corinthians five, nine through 10, where the apostle writes, I wrote you in my letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not at all mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the greedy and swindlers or with idolaters for then you would have to go out of the world. And the statement goes on. It says, nevertheless, it's not the clearest possible answer because it doesn't take into account what is required of a baker in the preparation of a wedding cake. So at least there's an acknowledgement that that wasn't clear. The cake maker would have to decorate the cake to the couple's specifications, likely with little figures representing a homosexual couple on top, transport it to the wedding, set it up, and help arrange it for display in the reception. The baker would thus be present and taking an active part in the actual celebration of the solicit charade, imitating uh, marriage. Uh, and then it goes on. John raised that hypothetical in our conversation. This is really long, isn't it? <laughs> he asked, if you were a baker, would you sell a birthday cake to a homosexual? If that cake ended up being used in a celebration of gay pride, would you feel you did something sinful? It depends. I said, if a homosexual person brought a, uh, bought a generic birthday cake from my cake counter, I am not responsible for what he does with it. But if he asks me to decorate it with gay pride slogans or perverse imagery that violate my conscience, I could not do it. That's precisely the proper distinction, John said. Producing and selling a product to someone living a sinful lifestyle is not inherently sinful. Celebrating that person's sinful lifestyle in any way is a sin. And that's uh, spot on. I think that's the end of it. So if you want to know more about that, since I don't have the primary source on it, you'll have to go to I Think Biblically on YouTube and contact them, Uh, about that. But that's the answer as far as I understand. And that's recent uh, to that particular clip. So, so no, MacArthur did not say the same thing that Alistair Begg did. And um, even if he, he had the the encouraging thing is he never doubled down on it. And that's why I think what he said about Alistair Begg's, you know, this being a moment uh, or, or, or saying we don't judge someone based on their moments. um, You know, looking at that clip of John MacArthur saying something that was confusing, that's a moment that he then clarified later when, when challenged about it, what you saw with Alistair big was a continual double down of something that pretty, wasn't even confusing. It was clear when he said it and it just became more and more clear the more he doubled down. So it's not a moment. So it's sad. Keep praying for Alistair big on that, but I'm grateful that, you know, um, Dr. MacArthur was able to challenge publicly, uh, someone who he considers a friend on that matter. Uh, all right. So moving on from that one, uh, let's do the, uh, this is, I guess the fresh thing. This is what's going on right now. And I don't know how deep I want to get into this because frankly, uh, I'm not an expert on this stuff. And I found that out last night very late because I asked my wife, what's it, what is this trad wife thing? I thought I knew what a trad wife or a, you know, like traditional, right? Trad traditional. So traditional wife, someone who wants to be, you know, stay at home, raise kids make food from scratch, maybe, uh, dress in a more traditional way. And, you know, they're, they're not following that sort of feminist corporate America, uh, view of how women should behave. Right. Well, um, I, I guess I'm wrong on that or I'm partially wrong. I guess that maybe there's some truth to that, but I don't know anything about this. Apparently on Instagram, though, my wife informs me that, uh, there are trad wife quote unquote pages that are uh, that are designed to make women really desire to uh, take this alternative lifestyle, which actually is, is kind of expensive apparently. So it's the aesthetic that you're about to hear Ali Beth Stuckey talk about. And, um, and, and they're made to think that this is like, so that they're inferior if they don't, I guess that's the issue. So it's like, you know, when when you were, uh, when we were younger and uh, magazines at the grocery store used to have models on them, uh, at least you know models who are who are better looking than a lot of the magazines today. And and the common thing you would hear is that this is horrible for girls because it gives them uh, bad body image um, issues. They they can't compete, they can't compare themselves. They you know they'd have to starve themselves to be that thin, that kind of thing, right? And it's just really unhealthy. That that's kind of what I'm getting from this. That like. That that you can't really possibly do all the trad wife things, whatever those are. So if you try and you fail, then it just leaves you in a in a bad spot. And um and, and to think of that as being also part of your Christian responsibility is not a good thing. So that's the best face I think I can I can put on this. Uh, and, and I think that's probably what Ali's saying. But let me play for you the clip. Now that I've set the stage a little bit. And uh, after I play the clip, then uh, you know, we, we can maybe talk about it, draw some applications. And, uh, and then uh, after I'm done with that, then I'll, I'll go through, uh, I'll see what comments, uh, questions are coming in. I'm looking for the question mark specifically. So uh, here is Founders, Founders Podcast with Ali Stuckey.
4: Trad wife. Yeah, trad wife. Which sounds like a made up word.
1: It's not. Um, maybe Ali, you could define trad wife for us.
5: Okay, sure. Well, this takes a lot of setup. So the context of this was talking about the trend of being a trad wife or having a trad life on social media, which is really less about traditional or biblical values and a lot more about aesthetics. And obviously there's nothing wrong with living on a farm and making your own sourdough and homesteading and all of those wonderful things. But because this has become a trend on TikTok and a trend on social media, unfortunately some people have made the mistake of conflating that so-called trad life and being a trad wife with being A biblical wife or a biblical mom or having a biblical life Uh, while homesteading and all of that is wonderful it's great motherhood for the christian is obviously much more than a social media trend it's not just something that you cosplay put a costume on and play and pretend Um, it's not just uh, an aesthetic it is a calling by god and there are biblical standards of course that women are called to uh, but it is uh, they're not standards that are set by social media. They're not standards that are set by a TikTok trend. They're not standards set by whatever social media influencer you follow that says in order to be a good mom, you have to make your own sourdough. That's a wonderful thing, but you can be, uh, a great and biblical wife and mom without doing some of those things, which is good news for me because I like to buy my sourdough.
0: <laughs> So, so that, that's actually the clip that was on Twitter that people were reacting to, which I guess seems pretty innocuous in a way. I asked a question about it. Um, I, I just asked like if it was good in and of itself to follow patterns of life that have been laid down, that are traditional, that, you know, seem healthy and and, and live healthy lifestyle because the, the example she keeps giving, I think she said it three times was baking sourdough. Um, and so I, I guess like my initial reaction to this, um, was like, well, or the initial thought I had was like, well, you know, what if, uh, what if it wasn't trad wife? What if it was just like f- being fit? So wives who wanted to be fit. And like, if, if someone came along and said, well, hey, that's not like, you can be like a biblical wife without being fit without like taking care of yourself that well. Uh, maybe you don't have time to do that. And you're comparing yourself then to people who go to the gym a lot. But, you know, don't do that. Like, it's an odd thing, I guess, in my mind, because it's like, well, that that's a good social trend, like to encourage that, like when it comes to uh, making sourdough, like I think that's a great trend. I And, and I don't know all the ins and outs of the Tradway thing. I just I'm just thinking like making your homemade bread. That's a good thing for And it, Not every person can do it. I understand that. But um, it's certainly a trend I would want to encourage. I, and it's certainly just like exercise and eating healthy. Like I'd want to encourage those things. Those are just good things. To do and they certainly dovetail with biblical responsibilities it, it's not like you are going to find chapter and verse for like every single thing you do like there's not a verse about putting an apron on right or you know but but like um some of these things are just they're healthy they're wholesome they're uh they're they're actually honorable too i think like they're you're honoring your um your parents your grandparents your you know time-tested things that that they've done and you're, you're picking the the true and valuable and good and, and the best things from that. And then that you're um, using them for yourself and your own family. So that yeah, that's a good thing. But, um, but yeah, of course, if you're going to be obsessed over it, yeah, that's bad. And, and maybe, and I'm assuming that's what Ali's talking about, but kind of like the MacArthur comment from uh from years ago when he's talking about uh, the, um the, the cake baking like this, this seems like it probably just could have, been a little more clear, you know, what's going on here. Are we talking about like all wives who want to be traditional and just bake sourdough? Are we talking about like this very unhealthy trend and that's all it is like, what are we talking about? And so I, I don't think this is like a big, big thing. I'm just going to be honest. I know some people are really going whole hog on this and maybe I'm missing something, but I, I don't see how this is like super, super big. Um, let's continue playing it though, because she says something that's sort of interesting the uh, coming up and I think Eric Kahn uh, pointed this out and So I'm I'm just going to play it, and you can draw your own conclusions.
4: Well, Allie, one of the reasons we wanted to uh, talk to you is because of the way the Lord has positioned you and used you to speak into certain areas, uh, culturally, politically, and to do so with a a good biblical uh, thoughtfulness about you, and to do so as a woman who's not embarrassed by being a woman or not frustrated that you're not a man or is trying to push some kind of agenda that would suggest there's no difference between men and women. so, I think it's fascinating how you and your husband Timothy have thought through this and worked this out and figured out, okay, you know, this is what our lives are like and this is how we fulfill the callings God's given to us, and uh, I have a husband and he has a wife, and we are very much committed to what the Bible says about biblical uh, marriage and family. So, tell us about how you've navigated some of those waters
5: wow that's a that's a that's a lot to answer and a, and a lot it's been a lot to well, they clap to for you so i figured that you're the one yes. that would have all the answers that's, on this that's totally fine no i think this is a great question and it's something that a lot of people are curious about um i started doing what i do uh, when we first got married so back in 2015 we were living in Athens, Georgia. uh, And I decided that I wanted to talk to the students in the area about why they should be voting in the election, 2015, 2016. Um, I had just graduated from college in 2014. I felt like I could relate to these young people in college. I was actually working in PR full time then, but I've always loved public speaking. I've always loved communicating. In one form or another, I have been doing this since I was a child. So I had this desire and had this poll to talk to young people about why the culture wars, why election.
0: I know this is long guys, just just bear with me for a second.
5: It's why politics matter. And so I actually started in um, sorority houses and I would reach out to the chapter presidents and say, could I please talk to you and give you my presentation about why y'all should be voting in the elections? And that's really kind of how it started. And this was a part-time thing. It was really just a hobby that Timothy was always incredibly supportive of. It certainly wasn't something that I ever intended to do uh, full-time or long-term, but of course it, it turned into that. And it's been different in different seasons of my life. There was a season of my life before we had kids when work looked very different than it does now. Um, but as a wife and a mom, that is my first and in, in my highest calling underneath just being a Christian. Um, and so uh, my responsibilities look different than they did before, but uh, the Lord has been very gracious in providing ways and providing opportunities for my husband and I to Um, to both of us, in one way or another, try to influence the culture and influence the church into navigating the culture wars in a way that is biblical, in a way that is courageous, while still allowing me to prioritize being a wife and a mom, and spending most of my hours dedicated to that. It's really not that my life, or really anyone's life, as a Christian is in these neat compartments but really that they all kind of fit together. It's a lot of traveling with family. It's a lot of doing things at home. It is a lot of leaning on each other and my husband has been such a good and a strong leader through all of this and every decision that we make. Really everything that I even say is something that we talk about beforehand and something that is just so woven into every part of our lives really Um, and so I don't really know if that answers the question because it's not some neat method that we have come up with to say okay this is exactly how we are going to categorize the different parts of our lives but my husband and I from day one have been working on this together and brought along our kids with us and so yeah we just try to do the next right thing in faith with excellence and for the glory of God that's kind of been our motto Um, yeah and so part of that is coming to florida and talking to you guys with a newborn and um that's a lot of what the past few years of our lives has looked like
0: you know I- okay i'm gonna i going just stop right there so um so, so some people uh i haven't seen everything on twitter sorry i don't know what everyone's saying on this but uh, i i do know that i i, I did catch that i, I know eric Kahn was uh saying that the context was it was bad in that it, it seems like ali's Beth's husband is kind of like her helpmate, I guess. Like the roles are somewhat reversed, something like that. Uh, I I don't know if I really see that here, but let let me just, this is, this is me. I don't want to talk. I I don't want to like necessarily assess what everyone else said, since I haven't even seen what everyone else said. I just know that there's a a lot of talk about this clip for some reason. Um, There are three or two or three things in that though, that I think are worth thinking through. And outside the box about, in, in other words, like the way that we've been used to thinking for the last 60 years, 70 years, it might be good to, to consider them. So, um, so, so, so the whole thing starts off with, um, Ali's going after this tradwife trend, because really es- essentially it sounds like it's, it's this unachievable standard that we shouldn't be killing ourselves to try to achieve because it's, it's not even our primary calling biblically fair enough right? Um, but the thing is, like, this, this is a new, as far as I know, this is a fairly new trend, right? So what was, this is the question I have, what was there before the trad wife trend? What was like the universal thing we all grew up with? And it's still there. And it's still way bigger than the trad wife trend. What is it? It's the career woman trend, right? Um, it's the, it's the, the woman can't, women can do everything traditionally men have done, and, and maybe even better. And, that has put way more pressure, right, on women. I'm sure Allie would agree with me on this. Uh, has put way more pressure on women um, that you can have your family and your career, and and you can be supermom, <laughs> right? And of course, you're going to have to microwave fish sticks because you're not going to have time for the sourdough because you're doing your career. And you know, this has been the thing, especially where I live in the New York area. Like, this is just expected. You don't even have kids till you've manage to get to a level of financial independence of some kind and you're you're in your 30s before you're having kids you're getting married you're having kids in your 30s and now that you know that's why it drives ibf uh, up and everything because and, and there's so many ibf clinics too because these women who are um the high-risk pregnancies now need all this assistance it's terrible and it's such a stark contrast between that and like a more traditional place. Like I lived in Lynchburg, Virginia for a little bit and it's very family oriented. It's, it's very different, but there, there, you still have that. You still have that pressure. Right. And so, um, so, so this is again, not, it's not a snide remark. I'm not against Allie or anything like that, but I just want to point something out that maybe is outside the box. When you heard Ali then describe her life, you know, and hold it up as like, this is a good thing. This is what I've done. I've, been able to pursue my dreams from the beginning. My husband has been there to advise me, to help me. And I also am a wife. I'm also a mother. Those are my primary callings. But hey, you know, I'm here at the conference. I have my newborn with me. I'm doing both. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm mean, Good for her. But I am saying that that also, just like the trad wife thing, can be, can be held up as an example. So how many listeners does Allie have that are young women? I mean, that's the kind of thing when they hear that, what are they thinking? Like, I can have it all too. Like I I should be able to do this. Right. And they might not have the income of Valley. So I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm not saying the trad wife thing is wrong necessarily either. I'm just saying that, um, the, like what's wrong is, is cutting corners and sacrificing really important things for things that aren't as important. So the job really isn't, it's not as important as right. The kids and and the husband and i think and, and i've seen this in my own life i'm going on my own rant now but i've seen this in my own life of career women in politics in business and other fields who try thought they could do that and i'm just telling you that generally it's gonna make some people mad I'm, i know there's exceptions so please i'm not saying your situations like this in general though it doesn't tend to work out over time the kids suffer i'm just telling you the kids tend to suffer um And so it's, that can be a temptation too. And that's all I wanted to say. Um, The other thing too, I think to maybe uh, to consider here, and this is, again, not being a legalist on any of this, not saying that there's, you know, the the Bible is saying, you know, one way or the other, you can be a political commentator as a woman or you can't. I just want you to think though about theologians and, uh, you know, political thinkers, um, political philosophers throughout the last, you know 500 years, like who do we go and we study? It, it's men every time, right? And of course, feminists will say that's because of the patriarchal dominance and all this. No, it's just because they're the ones that actually did work on this stuff. Women really were uh, in up until very recently, the ones who were taking care of the family, who were do, doing the things outlined in Proverbs 31, right? They were still engaged in you know certain business things and stuff. but it, it was men who were making contributions in the political realm. And the reason for that, I think, is my opinion, is that politics and war are very related. In fact, politics is, it, it, it's war ne- without, sometimes it does have shooting, but it doesn't have to, you know, so it's war without shooting. Um, it's trying to, uh, trying to make sure that your interests or the interests of the group that you represent are taken into account and that they win the day against competing interests. Uh, that's often the case. And there, there's all kinds of, um, you know, you have to meet people where they're at and and try to come up with resolutions and things uh, and compromises. But but that's essentially what it is. And it's the use of force at the end of the day, because if someone doesn't pay their taxes, if someone doesn't follow the law, you know who gets involved. It's police. It's military. It's the force that's at the end of the day. That's what the law does. It's force. And so I think this is something that maybe does deserve some thought somewhere. And I, I don't know who, maybe someone's done work on this, but um, to what extent can, or, or, and this is a better way to ask it, it not can women, because women can, of course, Sometimes they're very accomplished, I mean, Allie's accomplished, right? But to what extent is it good for families and for women to be invested in those things um, on a daily basis? I don't know the answer to that question. I don't, I don't know if there's like a time, I don't I, like slot. I don't know, you know, but, but traditionally speaking, I do know this. Um, men generally have been up until very recently, the ones responsible for war, for police actions, for political decisions, they're the directly the ones in those fields. So that is something. So, so when you hear Ali talking about like, this is this was her, you know, her passion was to go uh, make political speeches at these uh, sororities or fraternity. I think she said sororities. And then every step of the way, her husband's advising her and she's, she's building this career. You know, I, I'm not going to necessarily shoot at someone and, and say that they're sexist or they're evil. Maybe they are, but, but I'm not going to say because they question that, whether that's a good thing, they may actually have you know, someone like Ali's best interest in mind and even asking that question. So I'm not making any determinations. I'm just, I'm really bringing up questions that I think are, are good to ask, which, uh, which, uh, I'll probably get in trouble for, but, uh, but there you go. Um, and I think that was it. I think, um, yeah. So, so those were the things that I, I just wanted to point out about those are the only things that, that I saw that were worth, uh, talking about, you know, maybe I'm missing something, but, Um, but with the last, we've been going a little over an hour with the last uh, few minutes, I'll try to get to some questions. So, um, I, I certainly, there's a, Oh, there's a lot of people in this chat, so I'm certainly not gonna be able to read everything, but I'll, I'll definitely look for those question marks. And if I see any, um, I'll try to come to those, uh, those questions and, uh, let's see, what did I miss? (laughs) First question mark I saw. Um, I don't know. 524. Yeah. You, you missed a lot. (laughs) That was, uh. That was a little over ten minutes ago. You'll have to go back to the beginning. I'm I'm sorry, Violet. Um. Uh, let's see here. Proverbs thirty-one, wife. Uh, so so I'm not sure. Maybe Cat doesn't know what the Proverbs thirty-one wife is. So Proverbs thirty-one, obviously a passage that talks about um a a wife who blesses her husband, and so she does it it, it could be overwhelming sometimes when women read this because all the activities she engages in seem like overwhelming, but it's, it's a snapshot of, of her life. Really. It's the pattern of her life. It's not like this is a whole day she doesn't sleep. You know, she she stays up late, gets up early. No, I mean, like, it's just that her priorities are for her family. So she makes her husband, uh, her, her, her focus, her orientation is for her husband's success for helping her husband accomplish things. Um, and, and I think that's the biblical pattern, um, that we see that the wives are to be helpmates to their husbands. So, um, th- it becomes more difficult when it's, it's a 50, 50, when you have the wife and the husband and they're in a relationship where they're, they're, uh, raising a family to, they're doing all these activities, but the wife's got her career. She's got her 50% and the husband's involved, but it, it, it makes it hard. So I'm not saying it's impossible. I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I think that, uh, there are people who tend to manage these things better than others but um but the proverbs thirty one wife her, her orientation is around the home it's about her husband so that's what i'm talking and you go read proverbs 31 and uh see what i'm talking about there so um other not a lot of questions a lot of statements um uh the the bbc channel asks uh i guess this is not i think this is i saw the question mark but i don't know if it's for me brian babes podcast have you done podcasts on macarthur saying it's not sinful for christian bakers to make a cake for a gay wedding yes or no I don't know <laughs> I don't know if uh, Brian Babes has done that but I, I now have <laughs> um let's see other questions let's see we got Avers Fudge saying I'm in the process of getting ready to go to Liberty University for graduate school in history oh this is a great question how is your experience there is it worth it were you a GSA and how was that job All right. I'll be uh, personal with everyone. Yes, I was a GSA and I loved it. I, I absolutely love my experience at the history department of Liberty university. And I learned so much more there in my opinion about studying even the word of God, but just studying in general than I did ever in seminary. And, uh, that includes the three different seminaries that I've, I've attended. And so, um, I would highly recommend, uh, going to the history department at Liberty and, uh, and if you can get a GSA, that's great because um, you'll be able to save a lot of money and you'll be able to get a lot of experience, too, uh, in online teaching. And I'm just glad that when I did it, they they didn't have the AI stuff yet. So plagiarism was a lot more easy to detect. Now, uh, I'm not so sure. All right. Well, it, it looks like that's it for uh, questions. Um, if uh, Of course, if anyone has uh, questions or comments, you can also... Uh, put them on the video and I might or might not see them, but, um, but we've been going over an hour now. So, uh, Oh, one last thing I wanted to just show people this. Uh, someone was saying before, I think, I, I don't know where it is now in the chat, but I, I happened to from the corner of my eye, I caught someone saying they couldn't find this. So, um, if you go to worldviewconversation.com, you can find this, uh, but, uh, you know, John podcast.com as well. But if you, if, if that doesn't work worldviewconversation.com and it's speaking uh tab. So if you click on that, It'll take you to the speaking engagements. And yeah, March 2nd through 3rd, Albuquerque, New Mexico, the Reclaim Conference. You click on that. Oh, that's great. There's a page that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't come up. Well, it did come up uh, when I first put it there. Let me let me just real quick see if I just Google Reclaim Conference in Albuquerque if it comes up. Maybe that's the way that people need to find this. I don't know if uh, the URL changed. Um, it looks like it is. Yes, if you go on a search engine and you look for it it'll come right up. So new plan, um redemptionhillnewmexico.org, redemptionhillnewmexico.org. So forget what i said about going to worldviewconversation.com. Go to redemptionhillnewmexico, it's it's nm, so redemptionhillnm.org events and you'll find it right there. It's only $10 uh, to come to the reclaim conference and uh and you, you get more information there about where it is and all of that. So Uh, With that, God bless. I hope everyone has a wonderful weekend and more coming. Bye now.